So today we're starting the 32nd verse. And in the last few verses, Guruji has concluded four verses talking about all of the qualities needed to overcome the challenges presented by the mind, to conquer the mind, and to overcome the distractions of the world. So if we just recap what these qualities are that the Gurus talked about. Guru started by talking about contentment, mundas and dhok. Guruji talked about effort, awareness, an awareness of death, self-restraint, trust, universal brotherhood, Wisdom of the oneness, compassion, recognizing a vibration of oneness in all and everyone, understanding your destiny of things being brought into your life and taken away from your life, this destiny of union and separation, to transcend Maya and to be aware of the ever watchful nature of the divine and Guruji has ended all of the four verses with the same statement of utter reverence and humility egolessness towards this one timeless force by saying I bow to this I bow are this the set are this to the one that was the very beginning the pure beyond beginning and unending Ad Anil Anad Anahat Jug Jug Ekoves only one form throughout the ages. So with all of these qualities that Guru has mentioned, we can now really start looking at our life and start assessing how we measure up to these qualities. So we can start using all the things that the Guru has told us in a really practical way. And we need to look at where we can make adjustments in our life. And to me, this is how I think Gurbani should be looked at. I think this is how we should be studying. Almost as though the Guru is the teacher, we are the students. And the message of Gurbani is the syllabus. Except the only thing that's different to a normal school is that the subject that we're studying is ourselves. The very thing that we need to learn more about is ourselves. So all the qualities that the Guru has mentioned, those need to be adopted in our lives. And we need to continuously reflect on where we are with those qualities. And in reality, if we think about it, what more does the Guru have to teach you? How many more lessons can the Guru give us? What is left to be said that hasn't already been said? It's now time to actually take those things on in our life. How many times has Guru drummed in the same message again and again? But the reality is that the mind doesn't listen. The ego doesn't want to let go. The ego doesn't want to let you go. Because if you let go of the ego, then the ego has nothing to hold on to. So the ego feeds off your mind. It feeds off your anxieties, it feeds off your stress, it feeds off your desires, your hopes. 
and it feeds off this idea that you need to be sustained. The idea of I needs to continue. And because we've learnt all the lessons, we've heard all the lectures that the Guru has to teach us, but because we haven't managed to let go, the Guru continuously is there to teach us, like a loving parent. If you think of a small child learning to take its first steps, it keeps falling over, it keeps having to make mistakes, but the parent doesn't get annoyed, the parent just sits there patiently and is always there to pick up the child when the child makes that mistake, when the child falls down again, and the parent is always there to support and keep encouraging the, the child. In the same way the Guru is there for us all the time, always giving us the same message, always there to support us so that we can continue along this path. So this is the path of realization. We are trying to realize what we are. But the question is, what if we were to achieve all of these above qualities? What if we had contentment in our life? What if we had compassion, trust, an understanding of hukam? Would that be enough? At that point, can we say that we've become self-realized? It actually sounds like quite a lot of hard work. There's quite a lot of different things that the Guru has mentioned already. If we go back and think about all the lessons that we've learned throughout Japji Sahib, actually the student can start getting really overwhelmed. And then the student can go back and say, but isn't there an easier way? Surely there's something simpler, more direct than having to come up with all of these new, different aspects to our character. But the path that we've begun now is the path of the saint. And the path of the saint has always been described as difficult and has always been said that it isn't for everyone. It isn't possible for everyone to achieve this. It's just too much. It is always said that this is going to be restricted to the few. And although Guruji has highlighted all of these different qualities, it doesn't mean that we make these qualities our goal. Our goal isn't, I want to be more compassionate. I want to be more content. So these are just signposts along the path. If we think about a path, the reason for the Guru showing us all of these things are so that we can know that we're on that right path. Have I got less anger in my life? Have I got more acceptance? Have I got the ability to see through Maya? These are signposts, these aren't the destination itself. Because if these were your destinations, then what would your conclusion be? I am content, I am compassionate, I have trust. You may have all these things, but the problem is that you still have I. So these can never be the goals. This is precisely the trap that the Guru is trying to take you out of. 
So the Guru is there to show you the way. The Guru shows us the signposts. And the Guru is always there to bring us back onto the path when we've gone astray, when we've fallen off the path. And Guru Nanak Dev Ji here is now reminding us that Nam is the main goal. Nam is the thing that we're heading towards. Nam is the real tool that's going to carry us along this path. And where does the destination lead? Well, Guru already talked about the three states of Maya and then the fourth state, which was called the Turiya state. That state where you've transcended Maya, where you've transcended this notion of I am, me. And the state of Turiya is the final state of complete merging and union with the greater oneness. And this is how Guruji begins the 32nd verse. So the word ikdu. Here the word ikdu does not mean ikdo. It doesn't mean one and two. Here the word du means from. Ikton in Punjabi we would say. So, ikdu is when you take two words like ikton, from one, from one. The word ikdu should actually be one, one word. But what we see now in the modern printed gutkas is that it's been split into two different words. But in reality, these are two words that are being brought into one. So, ikdu is the way that the word should be written as one word, not separate. We've seen an example of this again in the 21st body. Nanak akhan sabko akhe ikdu iksyana. So Nanak says, becoming talkers, everyone talks and thinks that ikdu iksyana, one from one to another is cleverer. One is more clever than the other. Ikdu iksyana. Now, this is a unique spelling that we have here, which is worth highlighting. So the word comes from the Punjabi word jeeb, which is tongue. But what we see here is the use of kanora. And when you have in Gurmukhi a kanora added to the end of a noun, the name of any word, it is to replace what we call in English grammar a preposition. So prepositions are linking words. They're small words that you usually put before a noun. So we could say from, for, before, after, in, at, these kind of small words. So where in Punjabi grammar we see a kanora over a word, it is to replace a preposition. So here, it doesn't just mean tongue, it means from a tongue, from. So it's replacing this word, from. We've seen one other example of this right at the beginning of body 4, 
So again, we had a kanora. And rather than the word mu, which means mouth, muho means from the mouth. And something worth mentioning here is the pronunciation is an ao sound rather than an o sound. If it was a hora, it would be jibo. But this is a kanora, which is ao, jibao. Ikdu jibao, muhao ke bolan bolia. So just a pronunciation to be aware of so that you know the difference when you're actually using the two different vowels. You should be able to hear it when you're saying it. So here we will say ikdu jibao. And the next word is luck. Luck in Indian counting systems is one word to represent a hundred thousand. Luck. If one tongue became a hundred thousand, if from one tongue a hundred thousand appeared, if one tongue became a hundred thousand tongues, then again Guru says, again those hundred thousand tongues become another hundred thousand tongues, and from those you get lakhavis. Lakhavis means 20 lakhs. And in English, we don't really talk about grouping numbers in hundreds of thousands. We don't have a word like that. We have a word for a thousand. And then the next word that we have would be a million. So we have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and then you get a million. 20 times a hundred thousand is two million. So what Guruji is saying here is imagine that you have one tongue right now and that tongue gets multiplied to a hundred thousand tongues. And those hundred thousand tongues each become a hundred thousand more and those hundred thousand more become two million more. Imagine how many that would be. So what Guruji is really highlighting here is what we use our tongue for. How much effort does it take to recite Naam in our life? We think it's something extremely complicated, but in reality, it just takes a second and you can recite the Naam. Any Naam. And it takes one second to say it once. Just for a moment, imagine that you were able to say it for every second in 24 hours. How much Naam would you be able to jump? We say we don't have time to jump Naam. If you dedicated one day in your life and just recited it with every single second, with just one tongue, every word for every second in one day, you would recite 86,400 times in just one day. In one year, you would recite 31.5 million times. And if you lived to an average age of about 80, in your lifetime, you would jump 2.5 billion times. 
That's how close it is to you. There's nothing for else, else for you to do. If you could just recite again and again and again, how much Naam would you be able to jump? And still we think we don't have time for Naam. And all in reality it takes is one second. Do you have a second to recite that Naam right now? And the reality is you don't even have to stop what you're doing to jump Naam. You can do it what, while doing anything else. You can recite it anywhere, at any time, whilst doing anything. So why have we made Naam so difficult? Why have we made it so complicated? What can be simpler? And when we break it down into the number of seconds that we have in our day, the number of breaths, the number of opportunities that we have in just one day, then we realize that the only real lesson is this. This is what the Guru has been telling us all along. And how many breaths have you wasted? How many opportunities have you had so far? And how many other words have you recited in that time? What else has been more important that you've dedicated those words rather than the words of Naam? If you were to ask someone what is the one message of the Guru, the one message of the Guru, the answer would be is to recite Naam. This is how simple it can be. So what are we saying with our tongue that we think is more beneficial to say? What can we say that's better for us than this? And we have a tongue. We have the ability to speak. But still, Naam seems to evade our lips. And yet, when that happens, it's so easy to blame absolutely everything else. And what we're doing is we are not taking responsibility for the fact that we just haven't prioritized Naam in our life. We haven't given it that priority. So the Guru proposes an idea. Would it help if you had a hundred thousand tongues? Would it help if you had a couple of million tongues? Then will you recite? Is that the point at which you'll say, yes, I'll be ready? The next line, Guru says, Lakh Lakh Geda Akhye, Ek Naam Jagdis. Lakh Lakh. And hundreds of thousands of times, Geda means repetitions, to go round in a circle again and again. Geda. Lakh Lakh Geda Akhye. So you would then be able to recite it hundreds of thousands of times again and again. Hundreds of thousands of repetitions uttered. If you had that opportunity to have hundreds of thousands of tongues and each one was to repeatedly go and recite that one name of the world master, Jagdish. Again, something to look at here 
is the spelling of luck. In the first line, we see luck spelt without an onkar, and in the second line, we see luck spelt with an onkar. Same word, same meaning, two different spellings. Now, in Punjabi grammar, in Gurmukhi grammar, only nouns are gendered. Only nouns are given a masculine or a feminine gender. So, a noun is just something that has a name. Like we can say a watch, or socks, or shoes, or apple, or tree. These are objects. Only objects are either masculine or feminine. Other words aren't given masculine or feminine characteristics. So, a number is what we would say is a describing word. A number never has any value on its own. It always used to describe something. If I give you the number seven, you'll say, seven what? Seven has to be joined onto something. So, we have to understand that when we see grammatical differences in adjectives, what it means is that they give us an indication of what they're attached to. Because the adjective itself, like a number itself, can't have a masculine or a feminine. So in the first example, we're seeing luck, which we would call mukta. It doesn't have a vowel at the end. We call that free, a free word, mukta. And that's because this is an adjective, a describing word, a word that gives a characteristic to an object. And it's linked to jibo, luck jibo. The word jib is feminine. Istriling. The word jib is feminine. So because luck is attached to a feminine word, we would see the word as mukta. And in the same way, the second version of luck is linked to gira. And this is a masculine word, so it has an onkar. And so what we're saying in the first example, we're talking about a hundred thousand tongues, jibholakhohe, and in the second word we're seeing a hundred thousand repetitions. Lak lak gera. So this is why there's two different spellings. Also the word jagdis. Jagat da Ishwar. Jagat da Malik. Jagdish. The Ish there means Ishwar. The master, the lord of Jag, the world, the Jagat. And this is a name of God, Jagdish. Normally we would see the name of God to be a masculine singular word. We should again expect to see an Ankar at the end of this word. But because it's linked to another word, that's why we don't have it. So here we can start to see how we can start to understand Gurbani. And what is the word that it's linked to? Ek Naam Jagdish. 
ਸੋ ਜਗਦੀਸ਼ ਇੱਕ ਨਾਮ ਜਗਦੀਸ਼ ਮੀਨਸ ਜਗਦੀਸ਼ ਦਾ ਇੱਕ ਨਾਮ ਸੋ ਹੀਅਰ ਦ ਮੇਨ ਨਾਮ ਦੈਟ ਵੀ ਟੋਕਿੰਗ ਅਬਾਊਟ ਇਜ਼ ਨਾਮ ਵੀ ਨੋਟ ਟੋਕਿੰਗ ਅਬਾਊਟ ਗੋਡ ਵੀ ਸੇਇੰਗ ਗੋਡਸ ਨੇਮ ਸੋ ਨੇਮ ਬਿਕਮਸ ਦ ਮੇਨ ਵਰਡ ਦੈਟ ਵੀ ਟੋਕਿੰਗ ਅਬਾਊਟ ਸੋ ਇਫ ਵੀ ਵੁਡ ਜਸਟ ਟੋਕ ਅਬਾਊਟ ਇੱਕ ਜਗਦੀਸ਼ ਵਨ ਗੋਡ then jagdish would have an ankur because that's the main noun that we're talking about the main object that's being referenced here when this isn't the main object being referenced it has to indicate that somehow so it shows you that that i'm linked to something else so jagdish doesn't have the ankur underneath it saying i'm linked to something else and here we understand ek naam jagdish in the same way the word ek has an ankur because it's connected to a masculine word so ek has an ankur because naam has an ankur so just within these one or two lines we see that there's so much grammar that we really start to understand how important it is if we really want to translate gurbani accurately we have to understand the rules with which gurbani has been written lakh lakh geda akhe ek naam jagdish and if hundreds of thousands of repetitions uttered the one name of the world's master so guruji asks what if we had 100000 or even a few million tongues if each of these tongues was to recite the name hundreds of thousands of times then would it be enough at that point would it be enough for us to become fully realized what is the destination that's the question being asked here guru then goes on to clarify this path et rahe pat pavriya chadiye hoye ikis et rahe ra means path rasta this path pat pavriya pat comes from pati the husband it says that on this path towards the husband there are pavriya pavriya there are steps and chadiye hoy ikis when you climb those steps you find this thing called ikis and we'll go on to what that means so what guru is saying is yes naam is very important yes all the qualities that we've talked about so far are very important but they're all leading somewhere they're all going to this final step naam is what you need to support you while you're climbing this path while you're walking on this path so imagine now guru is using the example of climbing a mountain and there are millions of steps towards it naam is the thing that supports you all the way but you're getting somewhere there is a destination naam is the technique to help you reach that peak of that mountain and what is the peak what is the final step the final summit of the mountain is to hoe ikis ik is means ik ishwar the word ik and ish again here are being joined together ik ishwar hoe ikis to become one with ishwar is the final summit of the mountain so guru never strays from what he has always said has been the purpose of the path of realization hoy ikis 
to become one with the oneness, with that Ishwar. Everything else is a signpost. Everything else is a stepping stone. Everything else is a way to help you get there. But climbing on the steps, you know you've got there when you've got to the point where you no longer exist as you, the individual. Where you, Hoe Ikis, you become one with that Ishwar. This is what Guru has talked about previously. When you transcend the three stage, stages of Maya and you go into the stage which has been called the Turiya or the Chautapad, the fourth state. But Guru uses a very interesting word here. Pat. Guru, for the first time in Guru Granth Sahib Ji, references this oneness as a husband. You often see in translations this word husband lord. So it's really important for us to look at why has the divine been called a husband? The Guru has often used the metaphor of a relationship between a wife and a husband to represent the relationship between the sick and the divine, the Gurmukh and Paramatma. And this is one of those ideas that is more and more starting to get misunderstood by modern feminist thinking, which is trying to look at this idea as being a way of creating a gender discrimination, degrading women, putting women as low and putting the almighty God as the masculine. We are the females and God is male. Why is God the male? Why should God be the higher of the two? So this is the modern way of applying feminism and the ideas of feminism into an ancient concept. So it's important that we understand that we're not trying to use modern techniques to analyze ancient texts. We have to understand it from their perspective. We have to understand what the old original meaning is. So this is to be understood as a metaphor. This is just an example for the spiritual seeker. Now historically in Indian culture, the wife was seen as inferior to the husband. This is how the culture was. It was seen that the duty of the wife was to serve a husband who is to be seen as almost a godlike figure. In Indian culture, we, we have this term, Pati Parmeshwar. Your husband has to be seen as a god, and this is how the wife has to serve. But Guru is not trying to reinforce this cultural prejudice. Guru is simply using the metaphor, using the example that the society sees at, the, at that time to help people understand just as the wife is serving the husband, so we must serve the divine. Guru is not promoting this. Guru is not saying that this is socially acceptable. In fact, the Sikh Gurus actively fought for gender equality, for women's liberation, for women's rights. So we don't need to apply this modern-day feminist thinking to almost critique the Guru and saying, why are you using such metaphors? 
And the reason we know this is because there are other places in Gurbani where Guru has even used the example of human slavery as a metaphor. The slave trade Guru has actually used to describe that just as slaves are being bought and sold in a market, that a slave can just be the possession of a master in the same way the Guru has said that I am a slave of the Divine. There is one line where Guru says, Lala heart vihajya kya tis chaturai. I am a slave purchased in a market. What clever tricks do I have? So again, this should not be seen as the Guru accepting this system within the culture of the time. The Guru is simply using that analogy. Another way to think about it is today it is totally socially acceptable for man to own an animal, to have a pet. We see absolutely nothing wrong with it. Now if a thousand years from now humanity decides that this is a, a barbaric culture, humanity will then judge us for saying what kind of people have you been that you used to keep animals as your slaves, as your pets in your own house locked away rather than running free in, in the wilderness? So in the same way that we don't have an issue with owning pets in our house, go back 500, 1000 years ago, people didn't see these inequality issues. Slavery was normal. Having servants serve you was normal. Having the male more dominant than the female was completely normal. So we shouldn't apply modern thinking to critique ancient traditions. We simply have to understand what they were talking about from the context of their own traditions. But Gurbani has used this idea of a servant and a master quite a lot. The idea of a husband and a wife, the analogy that the Guru uses, actually goes much more than just serving. Gurbani also talks about a Gurmukh is one who has prepared his bed and allows himself to be ravished by the Divine the way a wife allows herself to be enjoyed by the husband in the pleasure of the bed of the wife. Gurbani talks about this quite a lot. But this is quite a mature concept. And because it's sensitive, we don't really hear people explaining this concept very well. So that's why in all your translations, you only see the wife and the husband analogy being that of serving, the wife serving. But then that's just a servant and a master analogy. The husband and the wife analogy is far deeper than that. But we're not afraid of these concepts because the Guru talks about them openly. So because we're on this path, we have to use all the analogies that the Guru is trying to use to try and explain to us, this is how you need to be on this path. We have to understand this analogy. So we have to reflect on this idea that just as a wife has prepared herself has prepared her bed to welcome the husband in, have we 
prepared ourselves to be penetrated in our body, in our mind, and in our identity by the divine. Are we ready? Are we willing to fully submit? If we look at all males in any species, what we see that the nature of the male across the animal kingdom is to wait for the female to be ready before they consummate. It is the female who indicates that she is now in season and it is then that the male comes to consummate, for them to copulate. In the same way, if the divine has been described as masculine, then it is the husband who is waiting for you to be ready. We always think that we are waiting for God to come. But the analogy here tells us that God is waiting for you to be ready. So Guru Nanak Dev Ji has used for the first time in Gurbani this analogy of the husband and the wife has to go along this path. The husband is already there. It is the wife that has to make the journey. We have to prepare ourselves we have to make sure that we are ready for that husband that is waiting for us, to enjoy us, to ravish us. So Guru Nanak Dev Ji here says that there is a path towards the husband and this path has some steps. We have to climb these steps with the Naam as our support to reach the top, that state of oneness and being merged with this permanent divine being. Now, the question is, what are these steps? Some very learned Sikh scholars have looked at the common understanding of enlightenment across the Indian traditions and they've made an observation that including this verse, there are only seven verses left to reach to the end of the Japji Sahib. And some scholars have said that since there are seven verses left to complete Japji Sahib, they've aligned these seven steps with seven steps of enlightenment that have come in other ancient texts. In particular, there is an ancient spiritual scripture called the Yoga Vashishta. That is said to be written by Valmiki, who is the author of the Ramayana. And in that specific scripture, there are seven steps to enlightenment that have been highlighted. I'll quickly go through what these seven steps are. The first one is Shub Icha, noble desire. The very first step, according to these seven steps, is that within you a desire has to come that I want to know more about what this divine is. Within you there has to be a thirst. That's the very first step of walking on this path. That I want to know more, that there is a realization that I don't have, but there is a thirst in me to find this out. The second step is vicharna, 
to contemplate who am I? Where am I in life? What is the purpose of life? What is the nature of reality? The third step is tanumanasi, the thinning of the mind, not constantly being distracted by the world, but actually now prioritizing this path, not constantly just listening to the whims of the mind. The fourth step is sattvapati, the awakening of spiritual wisdom. When you start questioning who am I, you start having this internal contemplation, when you realize that the answer is within you and not outside of you, then you start getting an awakening. You spend more time with other spiritual scholars, with other spiritual seekers, you start reading more, you start finding more information out, and then there is this kind of realization that starts to build within you. That's the fourth step. The fifth step is asamsakti, the breakdown of the barrier between the inner world and the outer world. Once the wisdom has got hold of you, and once you've applied that wisdom, once you practice that wisdom, the fifth step, it is said, is to start breaking down this wall of separation between I and everything else around me. That's only the fifth step. The sixth step is called Padharata Abhavana, which is that matter ceases to exist. You no longer see matter as something permanent. You now see it as light, as part of a divine energy. This is the penultimate step where you've broken the barrier between me and everything else and everything else is no longer a tree or a car or a bird or a sky, that now everything starts to look as one cosmos, one universal energy. And the, f the seventh and final step is called Turiya, which is utter annihilation of the self, utter losing of everything that you know to be me or everything else and all that there exists is oneness. Not that you see the oneness, but that there is only oneness. So this is what has been already identified as the steps towards Turiya, which is the final peak. So some scholars have said that these are the steps that Guru Nanak is talking about and that in the next few verses that each one of these concepts is going to be highlighted. So the Guru says, On this path, there are steps towards the husband. Climb them to become one. Hearing the gala, these talks of heavenly ideas, akaski, akasti gala, hearing the heavenly talks, Insects begin to imitate. And on this path, you will find that there are many imposters, many people who impersonate spiritual seekers, who impersonate <coughs> spiritual masters, and there are very few people who are actually walking on this path. This is what Guru is highlighting to us. 
Beware of some of the obstacles. There are only a few people that can climb these steps. But there are many others who will get you to believe that they have climbed these steps already. There are many others who will try and convince you that they've already done it. They hear about these spiritual concepts and then they imitate what they've heard. They talk about them. But they don't have the grace to go all the way. So being able to talk about spiritual concepts and ideas that you've heard from others is not the same as actually knowing the experience. And today we've become so comfortable with hearing everyone and anyone who's able to talk about these things. But how do we find the ones who've actually walked the path? Where do we find them? Are we even looking for the real deal? No one seems to be going all the way. So who do we find? Who can guide us? So instead, Guru is just highlighting that there are a lot of imposters who look spiritual, but the reason that they're being spiritual is for worldly gain. They're doing it for the fame. They're doing it for the money. They're doing it for the ego. They're doing it, but their motivation for doing it is to do with something worldly. There is some material thing that they're doing, even if it's their own ego, their own greatness, their own recognition. Now, Guruji has talked about these and has used this word Gita very specifically. In the seventh body, Guruji talks about all of these people who may have lots of fame, who may have conquered the world. Everybody knows their name. And Guru has said, if they don't have the grace of the divine, then in the end nobody asks about them. They become insects amongst insects. They are a sinner, they are punished. So these are the people that we're talking about. If you're famous, if you have a really long life, if everybody knows your name. So this is the Gita, the people that we're talking about. Guruji has talked about them, but now Guru is reminding us where you're going to find them. At what point on the path do you need to be aware of these people? So these are being described as insects. They're the ones who may have received worldly success, success in the material world, but they haven't attained this true realization. They're not the genuine article. They're fake. They're fraudsters. And it's important that we don't try to be more than we are. We shouldn't fall into these traps as well. This is why Guru is clarifying so many different steps. Here and even in the previous verses, the Guru has made sure that you can identify what are the qualities that you need to look out for. So this is the importance of Naam, that we begin to realize that we're not ourselves becoming imposters. At any point, we shouldn't think that just because we have a little bit of knowledge, that then we can now pretend to the world that we've achieved this spiritual enlightenment. The ones who've achieved spiritual enlightenment, we can't find them. They're sitting quietly meditating somewhere. The ones who haven't achieved enlightenment, they're the ones showing the whole world how enlightened they are. We have to be aware of these things. 
the Guru is showing us the way, all the way, all the signposts, all the ways that we can get led astray. And Naam is the tool, this underpinning tool that's just carrying us. As long as you have Naam, you'll be okay. But we need to realize that Guru has actually talked about quite a lot of different concepts. And although we said that reciting Naam is easy and can be easy, in reality it's very challenging. There are so many distractions, there are so many ways for our mind to be distracted, for our mind to wander off. So we don't need to think of this path as something that's just a walk in the park. This isn't meant to be easy. And the reason for Guru now saying it in this way is to humble us, is to bring us back down to earth so that we don't let our ego get carried away with us. So we don't think, look at me, I used to be a sinner, now I'm religious. I never used to meditate, now I'm a meditator. And being allured by all the the attention that comes with that, that wow, look how spiritual he is. Your family will turn around to you and say, wow, you've stopped drinking, you've stopped partying, you've stopped doing these things, you've become a Gyanni, you've become all wise. They'll call you Babaji. So your family will start giving you this attention and you need to be aware that this attention isn't good for you. This isn't something for you to now use. This isn't something for you to hold on to. Don't be fooled by the attention that the world gives you. Otherwise you become one of these insects, these imposters who haven't actually gone all the way, but because you've gone further than anyone else, you can start now pretending, you can now start preaching to the world. So this is what Guru Nanak Dev Ji is talking about. That the insects have heard about these heavenly ideas and they start imitating the things that they've heard. And Guru ends this verse with Nanak Nadari Paya. You will obtain this with grace only. Kuri Kuratis. Nanak says that it is obtained by grace. Kuri Kuratis. Kuri means the false ones. The people who are false. Kuratis. They have false speech. Tis means to brag, to boast, to show off. Nanak Nadari Paya. Guru Nanak Dev Ji says that this is only obtained by grace. The false ones will falsely brag. They will show off. But their showing off is false, is fake. And we are reminded that this comes only by grace. Without grace, we have no authority with which we can discuss the true nature of the divine. Remember this. Whenever you think that your opinion of God is better than someone else's opinion of God, where does your opinion come from? Is it something that you've heard? Is it something that you've read? Or is it something that you've known? Be honest with yourself. We take so much pride in our knowledge. We take so much pride in these concepts that we've come across that we forget that the pride is more significant than our concepts. We think, look how clever I am. Look how much knowledge I've managed to attain. But there is an underlying pride that is a bigger issue here. The concept is just that. It's just a concept. It's not actually something you've known. 
It's as though you have an idea of what the ocean looks like without ever having been to the ocean, without ever seeing a picture of the ocean, without ever having a swim in the ocean. You can have whatever concept you like, but it is just that. It's just an imagination. Now you will argue with somebody else about your imagination being better than somebody else's imagination. Neither of you have swam in the ocean. Neither of you have ever visited the ocean. Neither of us know what God is, but we're so willing to argue our definition of God is better than somebody else's definition of God. So remember this, your pride is what is stopping you from even going on the journey. The very pride that you have that I think I know what God is already, that is stopping you from actually going there and achieving it. You may be so convinced that you know about God that you may never actually need to walk on the path towards God because you know. And we see this time and time again. We see so many times older generations within the Sikhs saying, teach the children. Do you know everything? Have you learnt it all? They think they do. The older generation is convinced. We know what the Guru says. We know how to do our part. We've kept our gish. Now teach the children. And of course it's important to teach the next generation, but don't be convinced that you know. If you think you know, then you are no different to what Guru is saying, that you've heard these ideas, but you don't know them. Gita Iris, you're just imitating. And then, Kuri Kuratis, you're just talking, useless, babbling rubbish. Until you know, until you've had Nanak Nadari Paya, until you've obtained it. Paya means, I've got it. I've actually obtained it. I'm here. I've reached the top. Guru says that is only by grace. And if you don't have that grace, don't think that you have anything. Vaheguru Ji Ka Khalsa, Vaheguru Ji Ki Fateh.